Welcome to Solder Smoke, a podcast about wireless technology. We talk about everything from old-time crystal radios to modern digital satellites. We form a global brotherhood bound together by a common desire to understand, repair, design, and build our own electronic equipment, and by a willingness to help each other in our efforts to master radio technology. All are welcome. Now, please join us in the solder smoke. <clears throat> All right, good morning. It's Saturday, December 3rd, 2011, and that means we are extremely overdue for solder smoke 139. Sorry for the delay, guys. I've got an excellent excuse. I've been melting solder. I've been stuck in one of those problems that you just, you know, you just have to keep on, you know, keep on fighting. You know, no, nobody said scratch-built home brewing was easy. It's not for the faint of heart. And sometimes you get into a problem and you just got to stick with it. When I was a kid, you'd, I'd get into these kind of problems. I'd get all frustrated and throw the thing out and tear it apart. I don't do that quite as often anymore, but uh, <laughs> the temptation is there. I'll, uh, I'll tell you about this project, but first got to tell you that this episode of Sp- Solder Smoke is sponsored by JTRON. That's J-TRON, T-R-O-N, JTRON, an excellent supplier of uh, parts for the radio amateur, a company run by a radio amateur, and uh, a, good, a good source for all those, uh, as the Brits would say, bits and bobs, all those pieces that you need to bring these uh, difficult electronic projects to successful completion. I'll uh, I'll talk more about the our our new sponsor at uh, sort of at the midway point. You might hear some audio distortion. I've uh, <laughs> that's uh, biologically induced. I've uh, I've been struggling with a cold, which is another excuse I have for uh, the long delay in producing this episode of Solder Smoke. It seems to be going away. I think, but uh, it's been it's been with me since about Halloween. Speaking of Halloween, that, that is sort of the travelogue section of, uh, of this episode of the, of the podcast. Uh, I want to report on our uh, Halloween activities here. Uh, Maria was uh, dressed up as Audrey Hepburn, and, uh, John, and Billy was dressed up as uh, John Lennon. You could tell the kids are, are getting older. They're going for the more sophisticated <laughs> people. It's no more, uh, you know, Spider-Man and... Uh, Snow White and stuff like that. Uh, Audrey Hepburn, as she was dressed in Breakfast and Tiffany's, and uh, uh, John Lennon. Also, our um, our pumpkins this year. Uh, I mean, those of you who are outside the United States might not be aware aware of this custom, but we we get pumpkins, which is a variety of squash, carve them out, pull out all the all the guts, and then we carve faces in them. Usually it's just the standard kind of smiley face, and then you put a candle in there and you put it on your front steps. Well, this year the kids are, as I said, the kids are getting more sophisticated, and uh, Maria wanted to uh, do a little mathematical joke. So we carved the symbol for the Greek letter pi in the uh, pumpkin, and therefore it became known as the pumpkin pie. Get it? (laughs) Many of the trick-or-treaters who came to our house did get it. One lady asked me if I was a math teacher. <laughs> I said no. I would like to be, but I'm not. Um, but uh, anyway, you could get a, you could take a look at the picture of the pumpkin pie up blog. There it is, and uh, we had a good time with that. And then uh, for Thanksgiving, it was up to uh, the state of Maryland, which is the next state over. 
but uh, a bit further north than the than the state line up uh, beyond Baltimore where my sister lives and uh, we always love to visit with them and my kids are especially interested in visiting with them because there are cousins up there that are uh, who are uh, just about the same age as Billy and Maria one of the one of the big disadvantages of growing up as a foreign service kid you, you know you get all the the advantages of living and growing up in these amazing places like uh, like London and Rome and and the Azores Islands, but the uh, the downside is that you grow up without having cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents around. So uh, and we we take advantage of every opportunity we get to to go and interact with the uh, with the cousins. And these cousins are particularly cool. I think I mentioned this in a previous solder smoke. They uh, they are rock stars. They are teenage rock stars. They have a rock and roll band called Never Ending Fall. You can check them out on YouTube. And uh, they are really good. So um, it's kind of cool when you have your uh, your cousins. Well, we went up and uh, ate the turkey and uh, sat around and ate, pump, ate real pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving. It was a great trip. I hope everybody, uh, all our American listeners, had a, had a good good Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, I was thinking I got a lot to be thankful for. And among them... It's all the great people who listen to Solder Smoke and send me emails and send me pieces here and uh, advice and encouragement and well, I just uh, that was that was one of the things that one of the many things I was thankful for uh, on Thanksgiving Day. So thanks to you guys. Uh, hey, uh, another big event. Billy turned 14. Can you believe it? 14 years old. He's now. Well, he he said that 13 didn't really feel like being a teenager, but 14. You're a teenager at 14. And uh, one of the things he got for uh, his birthday was a book called Backyard Ballistics. <laughs> I, I, and uh, uh, there was another book available. I think I think a Solder Smoke uh, listener may have alerted me to these publications. Was, was One of them was called uh, the, Pyrotech, the Pyromaniac's Manual or something like that. It was a bit too much. But Backyard Ballistics didn't look too dangerous, so... Off we went, and we got Backyard Ballistics. We did a project in there for a, uh, what they call it, a, um, a lighter-fueled mortar, a, a lighter-fluid mortar. And it's a, supposed to be like a little mortar, and you, you, uh, if you get it just right, you pour the lighter fluid in there, you let the, uh, the, 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 the fluid kind of uh, vaporize a little bit in this chamber. You hit it with a spark, and boom, it's supposed to shoot this uh, uh, tennis ball up in the air. Ours uh, needs a bit of work. It made a little pop, but it didn't launch any tennis balls. So, like I said, needs some work. Uh, another event, and this is, uh, some of you guys may be surprised about this, but uh, we one of the things Billy wanted to do, and I guess red-blooded American boys want to do this, he wanted to do some shooting. <laughs> you know, he said, hey, Dad, can you take me to uh, to a rifle range? Now, I'm not really into guns, frankly. I'm just not, and, and I, uh, I don't have, I don't have one. We don't have any around. But you know, I, hey, you know, I, I, he he wanted to do it, so I went and found a uh, a shooting range here in uh, in Northern Virginia. In Virginia, it's not difficult to find shooting ranges. <laughs> Even in Northern Virginia, it's not difficult. And we found one uh, not too far from the house, and made arrangements and. Uh, so as part of Billy's birthday celebration, he and I went out to the shooting range and uh, 
blasted away at some targets. We used a uh, uh, a 38 caliber revolver and a uh, and a kind of a cut down version of a Car 15. <laughs> I was I was familiar with the Car 15 from from a previous life, but uh, Billy found the whole thing quite quite mind boggling. And you know, anyway, we, he was a pretty good shot. So uh, there we go. That was one, one part of the birthday celebration. All right, moving into the world of the knack. Um, first of all, I want to report on some ash couple things with telescope since our last show that I've been meaning to do for a long time. Both of them are knack and radio related. So, so listen up. I mean, those of you who are tuning out because I'm drifting off into outer space, well, tune back in because this is related to what we do. You know, I have these. I have two telescopes here, and. Over the years, I've been seeing on the web reports of people who have used these little webcam cameras. Remember these little cameras that we used to have? Now they're all inside the screen, inside the computer, but these little standalone uh, webcams, they look like a little eyeball. You know, I used to plop them up on top of the monitor back when we had these CRT monitors and all that. Well, there's a way that you could do it where you can just hook it up and plop it direct, directly into the um, the eyepiece, uh, uh, kind of the the video output of the telescope, you know where you would normally put your eye, and uh, and then you connect the uh, the webcam to the computer, and voila, inst- instant astrophotography. And I've always been kind of intrigued by this. And the other day I was sitting around here, and it just happened that an old webcam thing was sort of sitting on the on the workbench, occupying space. So I took it, I. Uh, I went to the appropriate website and figured out how to how to crack it open. It was really a very cool little project because what you use as the adapter is one of these little plastic cases for a 35 millimeter uh, roll of film, and you just chop off the bottom. You sort of tape it to the webcam. You open up the webcam and you remove the lens, and then that 35 millimeter film can fits perfectly into the little eyepiece of the telescope. So instead of putting your your eyepiece into the scope, you pop this little webcam in there. Well, I, I went outside with the telescope. You know, they work better out there. <laughs> with the telescope and the uh, I had the little Billy's old little Asus EPC computer that is frequently discussed here on the Solder Smoke podcast and my new eyeball webcam camera. It was really it was really neat because when you opened it up you could see that little charge coupled device chip sitting in there almost like a little electronic retina almost like a little electronic piece of film and I put it in the uh, in the eyepiece and and started looking around and, and it was amazing really pulling in the photons projecting them up on the little screen there and I took a took a bunch of pictures with it and it was a just a neat little bit of kind of the knack applied to astronomy and, and astrophotography. I've got p- pictures up on the web. I took some shots of Jupiter and the Galilean moons and also some shots of, uh, of, of the moon. Uh, the results, I mean, they're not all that spectacular, but I mean, this, this was about 15 minutes invested. And <laughs> the, the program that I was using is this freeware program that I got uh, for the Linux computer called Cheese. And it's well, it's kind of cheesy. It's not not made for this purpose. It it did the job, but I'm sure there's a lot 
better available out there. And with a little bit of extra work, I'm sure we'd have all kinds of uh, better better results. So that was uh, our adventure in Astro, Astronac. Another, here's another kind of radio-related adventure in Astronac. Um, you know, the, uh, the sunspots are returning. The, uh, the new cycle is, is starting to get going. We've all noticed this. The, uh, the upper bands, the upper HF bands are coming back to life. This is a, this, this is a, this will be discussed at length later in the podcast. But, uh, this made me think that I should, I should really have a method of monitoring the sunspots directly from my own backyard. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know why I had this feeling. I just did. You know, and you guys know what I mean. It's part of the whole knack thing. Well, using the same telescope, and 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 in, in both these adventures, I'm using my old four and a half inch Tasco Newtonian reflector with wobbly equatorial mount. And wobbly is not the brand name. Um, it I. I Okay, I wanted to use it for solar astronomy. Now, this reminds me of the Gene Shepard BB gun story. When Gene Shepard told the story about when he was a kid and he wanted to get a BB gun, he wanted a Red Rider BB gun. Um, he was really dismayed because every time he he raised the subject or hinted that he wanted one for Christmas, everybody, all the adults would kind of look at him and say, you'll shoot your eye out with that thing. You know, they were trying to discourage him. He wanted that BB gun, but they kept pointing out the danger and they kept saying, oh, you'll shoot your eye out. Well, as soon as I started thinking about solar astronomy, of course, I could hear those little voices, all those cautionary voices, all the, vo- the voices of all those people who want to just wrap everybody up in cotton and not let them leave the house. Who, who don't want to let people play around with high voltage or uh, backyard lighter fluid mortars or 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolvers. You know, all those voices that you've heard since you were a little kid saying, don't do that, you'll shoot your eye out. Well, anyway, I knew that at solar astronomy, combining the sun at midday with a very powerful telescope, it could be hazardous to your visual health. I knew this, but I said, okay, look, no guts, no glory. Let's go out there and do this. And the safe way to do it, of course, is not to even look through the telescope. There's a way you could do this. You just set up the telescope, and what you do is you get a piece of paper, and you project onto the paper the image that you would not want shooting directly into your eye. And so I took the telescope out. One of the things I was worried about is how am I going to line up the telescope? How am I going to get the scope onto the sun without actually looking through it or looking through the, uh, the finder scope, which I think would probably be dangerous or definitely would be dangerous also. But, you know, I figured it out as soon as I got out there. It was, it was obvious when you, you it, the, the scope is casting a shadow onto the ground. And what you do is you just look at the scat shadow and you, you move the scope around until it's obvious that the scope is, is lined up with the sun. There you go. As we would say in Italian, eccolo. Um, you got it. At that point, you just take this piece of paper. You hold it up where the eyepiece is. And Billy and I both stood on the opposite end of the eyepiece. You see, I was being a responsible dad, even though he had just come from the rifle range where we were firing away with a, with a car 15. <laughs> 
Anyway, I held a piece of paper up there, and it was amazing. Just, wow, the, the image of the sun right there. And I looked, and Billy and I were looking, and I said, look, look, sunspots. Almost instantly, I saw five or six sunspots. And then I started doubting myself. I said, wait a second, maybe these are just pieces of dust on my mirror or you know, pieces of stuff on the paper or something in the eyepiece. But then I looked, and they looked like sunspots. So Billy had the camera. He snapped a picture, and I snapped one, too. I was kind of holding. At one point, I was holding the paper and the camera, and we got some pictures. And then I ran inside and fired up the Internet, as you do these days, and went to the, uh, where I, which I knew would be there, the uh, image of the current image of the sun from the uh, solar dynamic, from NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory spacecraft. Uh, and there it was, and the current image of the sun, and, you know, the sunspots were there, and the configuration of the sunspots matched perfectly with, uh, with what Billy and I had observed with our telescope that I bought in 1994 for $50 in the Dominican Republic by a, a departing American diplomat. <laughs> I think we got our money's worth on that one. And it was really cool to have this kind of direct connection with Old Soul and the, uh, and the sunspots and, uh, and the... Uh, and the new solar cycle that's behind that's that's coming up. All right. And speaking of cycles that are coming up, winter is up is upon us here. Holy cow! We're in December. It's not really been that cold here yet. We've got a couple of cold days, but the weather's been real nice. But uh, the shack, it's you know, it's in the part of the house that well, it needs a little bit of extra heating support back here. And so right now, I'm happy to report that the shack is being heated by. And this sounds like a law a law firm. It's being heated by. Helicrafters, Hammerland, Heathkit, and Drake. <laughs> when I want to get a little extra warmth in the shack, I just fire up the uh, the boat anchors, and those uh, all those tubes, those sixty-one forty-sixes, they put out a nice uh, kind of very, you know, there's a, that as there's that nice uh, tube aroma, and uh, anyway, that's part of uh, part of what's heating up the shack. Um, I want to get the K2 ZA DX100 going this winter, and, and having it fired up, I think, provides inspiration. But I've been diverted. I've been diverted by other projects, and I want to tell you about them now because we now move into the the really deep knack, uh, the portion of the show. I, you know, when I know when I saw those sunspots and I started hearing about what's going up on the upper bands, I said, man, I want to listen. I want to listen. I want to get on to 17 meters. 17 meters was my favorite band when I was out in the Azores. I was out there during near the peak of the last solar cycle. We were we were in the Azores from 2000 to 2003, and uh, the bands were in good condition. I was in an excellent location. I had the world's greatest ground plane. I was completely surrounded by salt water. I had a house up on the hill. I could see the horizon in most directions, not to the north, but most of all other directions. And I used to sit out there and on 17 meters get into these long, interesting rag chews with guys on the European continent and guys in Australia, New Zealand, Tristan de Kuna, the island of Go. I'm telling you, it was a DX adventure, guys, and, uh, and I loved it. And 17 meters was great. No contests, friendly, just wonderful stuff. Uh, so... Anyway, I want, I, I want to start out by listening. So I turn, of course, to my trusty Drake 2B. Now, the Drake 2B was designed and built long before the 17-meter radio amateur band existed. But 
those wise engineers out there in Miamisburg, Ohio, at R.L. Drake and Company, left provisions for the Drake to tune different bands. And uh, they uh, they have these kind of uh, other they have the crystal sockets where you put in a crystal for the, uh, for the local oscillator. And uh, you could basically pick any of the HF bands you want. There's a chart there in the... Uh, in the little in the manual that comes with it, with it that tells you what crystals you need. And way back, back years ago, I ordered from uh, from one of the crystal companies, I think from Jan, a uh, a crystal that would allow my beloved Drake to be in the E band position to tune the 17 meter radio amateur band, and uh, works like a charm. It always did for you for years. This is what I use to to tune 17 meters. Hold on a second. Got to pause now. All right, sorry, had to had to go check on something. The cat, Tyson the cat, was outside. Sounded like he was uh, in a fight and losing. <laughs> I'm I'm I, I joke in the early morning hours here. I'm like the uh, the zookeeper. I have to keep an eye on Tyson the cat and Capucho the dog. Anyway, all right. So I wanted to get on 17 meters the Drake 2B. I thought it was all set. Fired it up. Nothing. Nothing, nothing. Boom. 17 meters is not working on the Drake 2B. All the other bands are working. Not uh, not 17 meters. I went in there. I started poking around. I, you know, I mentioned this on the blog. I got all kinds of advice from people on what to do, what could be wrong. Turned out to be real simple. The crystal gave up the ghost. And uh, I did some troubleshooting. And there was some other crystals there for the local oscillator that were kind of close. I think the... Uh, I think it was 24 megs was the crystal that I needed. There were some others that were in there that were um, very very close in frequency, and I pop, if I popped them into the uh, into that socket in the uh, in the uh, in the back of the Drake 2B, they would they would work and the radio would work. So it was fairly easy to to kind of isolate it to the crystal. The crystal was bad, and so I thought, oh man, I'm going to be out of business with the Drake 2B for a long time on 17 meters. But then I realized that I'm in my huge junk box which includes lots and lots of crystals there might be something in there that would allow the 2b to tune uh to tune 17 meters using uh, another crystal and sure enough uh, a crystal around 14 megahertz in one of the other sockets will result in the appropriate kind of um kind of oscillator if configuration to allow 17 meters to be tuned bang put it in there all right, back on 17 meters, listening. Now I'm listening, and it sounds great. I'm listening to people, all kinds of DX pouring in, the same kind of friendly conversations that I had out there in the Azores. So now I am I am really motivated. So I start looking around, and I think, okay, uh, now is the time for me. And, and I've been joking about this phrase on the, uh, on the, on the blog. It's time for me to recycle some of the rigs that I built out there in the Azores. And I mean recycle in in two two senses. You know, one is the regular sense. I'm just going to reuse them, repurpose them, get them going again. You recycle the, the equipment. But it's also for the new solar cycle because we are going to be approaching now the, uh, the peak of, of the current solar cycle. And I'm essentially pulling out gear that I built for 17 meters during the last cycle. The first rig 
that I I, I went for was the um, the double sideband rig, the first 17 meter rig that I built out in the Azores. I I loved this rig. It was based on a uh, an idea from Doug Demore. He ran a an article in uh, in CQ magazine. Let me, let me pull it out here. I think I have it right here. There was an article. Ah, this is the this is the article that really launched me on my. Uh, my long adventure in building phone rigs, especially double sideband rigs. It's called uh, GoQRP with double sideband. Doug's desk, construction projects, techniques, and theory in the February 1997 issue of CQ Magazine. If you guys have a big stack of CQ Magazine around, dig this one up because it's great stuff. I, I really found this, this, this article inspirational, written when Doug was out there in Luther, uh, Missouri. Um, and it's just a real simple uh, double sideband rig, and uh, I, I built a version of this when I was out in the Azores, and and I think in one of the early um, kind of applications of sort of a blog, I I, I kept a a running uh, dialogue going on my website with uh, people who are interested in the project, and every day or so I would post. Uh, the latest uh, progress and or, or lack thereof, the trials and tribulations of getting this rig on the air. It's built on a um, on a board. It's kind of got a breadboard base, and I, I I started out with a transmitter and I just built the I built the VXO for 17 meters, a balanced modulator using the two diode circuit that Doug Demaw had in his article, a circuit that I find very appealing. And then just my, my real problems began when I tried to hook up a uh, a, um, a power amplifier to get the uh, the output up to about five watts, and that 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 led to a, a real tale of woe. You know the old story about every time I build an amplifier, it ends up being an oscillator. Well, yeah, that's what that's what I struggled with out there in the Azores, and I had a tough time getting a stable oscillator going, the stable amplifier going. Um, and I, I described it all there. But anyway, this rig, um, I finally got it working, and it became like my magic carpet out there in the Azores. Made all kinds of good friends, had all kinds of good times with that radio, and now 17 meters is coming back, so I dragged this rig off of the storage shelf, dusted it off, and, and started working on getting it going again. Now, my idea was that I, I had long ago pulled out the um, the final amplifier of this rig and used it in another circuit. It was just a little broadband uh, amplifier that, that worked fairly well. And I, and because of my the trouble that I had in, in getting, you know, even five watt amplifiers to work properly, when I when I got one to work, <laughs> I would <laughs> I would move it from rig to rig, <laughs> and it's kind of pathetic, but that's what I was doing. So that's why this little double sideband rig was was sitting there, ready to go, except for the lack of a. Uh, of a power amplifier. So I said, well, okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a Farhan's JBOT circuit that I've been looking at for a long time, and I'm going to use Farhan's JBOT circuit to, in this rig, I'm just going to add this wonderful um, design from India, designed for India, uh, amplifier, and put it in my rig, and it'll add uh, another kind of personal kind of 
international brotherhood of electronics wizards element to this rig. It's always fun when you add a circuit that's been designed by somebody you know, by a friend, by a friend from the other side of the world, and that that has some real kind of, I don't know, kind of lore um, and allure to it. It's really, really, I, I like this amplifier because Farhan designed it to be built by radio amateurs in India who might not have who, or who wouldn't have access to the kind of uh, specialized parts that that people have access to in other parts of the world. So the, for example, the, uh, the, the coils in Farhan's designed were designed to be wound around TV balancors that you could get from a discarded television set or a discarded VCR in India. And uh, anyway, really a cool little amplifier, 5 watts, 1 milliwatt in, 5 watts out, about 37 dB, great stuff. And I decided to uh, J-Bot the uh, Azores DSB rig, and that that led to the latest adventure. All right, I think it's time to pause now, because we're going we're gonna to pause for a word from our sponsors. And the sponsor, as I said before, is JTron. Uh, JTron is a wonderful company. It's been in business for 16 years. Um, the uh, the owner is a radio amateur. Is Jim, and uh, his call sign is W2KLM. He's one of us. Uh, he Jim will ship all items, all stock items, ship the same day, and. Uh, ship with a follow-up email. He's an authorized distributor for NTE, ECG, Fillmore Manufacturing. He's got tons of small parts for builders and, and radio amateurs, a large selection of transistors, interconnects, PC boards, cores and kits. Uh, he's got, he runs online contests and, uh, and, and recently ran an online contest for uh, an, an ECG soldering iron. He's always adding odd, odd parts to the site and he does online sales only. He's been in, electronics, in the electronics distribution business for over 26 years. And uh, I know that Jim is one of us. Uh, he, he notes in his email to me that he's, he still has the knack. He still likes building kits and playing around with circuits. Uh, this all started for him in his basement as a kid. And, uh, and, and, and his, his basement adventures as a kid included a chemistry set. Um, he, uh, it looks like, I mean, a really wonderful company. I, I'm going to be placing an order with them real soon for, for a lot of, a lot of the kind of stuff that, a lot of the parts that I depleted here as I, as I went through the JTron project. So definitely check out, uh, Jim's company. It's uh, www.jtron.com. I have a link to it on the blog page and you'll, you'll see the, the resistor there. And, uh, Again, JTron, that's j-tron.com. Check it out. I think it'll be an important source of uh, parts for, um, for neck victims and, and, uh, and, uh, and home brewers uh, around the world. So check it out. And uh, thanks very much for, to Jim for, uh, for being interested in solder smoke. Hey, okay, so back to the adventure. So I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to J-Bot. Hey, that kind of goes with it. J-Bot, J-Tron, there you go. Anyway, uh, I'm gonna gonna J-bot the uh, the Azores rig, and and I I got the parts. You know, I I had no problem getting you know getting the parts for uh, for Farhan's rig. Uh, let me scroll down here. Uh, 
Um, oh, wait, hold on. Before I get into the JBot. You know, I fired up this rig and I thought everything would be fine. But I had problems even with other stages. Apparently this thing, I don't know what, what it was, but uh, the uh, the VFO, the VXO on the um, on the rig uh, was, was not working. Uh, it just dead as a doornail. And uh, I went in there and discovered that some of the uh, the MPF-102 uh, JFET, there you go, another J, JFETs, JTRON, JBOT, the, um, the, uh, <laughs> the MPF-102 JFETs on the, uh, in the VXO circuit were bad. And, and this is an example, I think, of, of the, the uh, you, you know, you, you get older and wiser. And when you go back and revisit rigs that you did from the previous solar cycle, you see things and you say, "Man, I should have, <laughs> I, I should have done that differently." One of the things I should have done is I should have put diodes across the uh, the coils on the TR relays in that rig, and I, I didn't do that. And so I think what was happening was when those relays were kicking over, and I got two relays in there, one or two relays for 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 TR purposes. When they were kicking over, they were creating big big uh, voltage transients that were knocking out the uh, MPF-102 JFETs. I, th I kind of always thought that those, uh, those JFETs would be a bit more robust. I, I always, you know, I had, I knew that the MOSFETs were, were sensitive and you could puncture those um, little uh, gate barriers really easily, the metal oxide gate barriers. I knew that, for example, a 40673 dual gate MOSFET Man, if you looked at those things wrong, or if you had a little bit of static from your sweater or something in the winter, <laughs> you could blow those things up in a heartbeat. But uh, I thought—I always thought of the JFETs, the the 102s, as being a bit more, or quite a bit more robust. But I guess not. I think the transients from that uh, from that relay were knocking them out. Anyway, you live and learn. And I put a uh, I put diodes across the uh, the trans the uh, across the, uh, the coil on the relay, and that, of course, takes care of the voltage spike that comes when the relay opens and closes. So then I went in and replaced, uh, started replacing the, uh, the MPF-102s, and I thought, the, first I thought it was just the, uh, uh, just the oscillator uh, trans, uh, the oscillator JFET itself replaced that, but then I was having trouble with, with getting the power out, and it was kind of an interesting little... Uh, um, troubleshooting process. It, it looked like I was getting power out, but as soon as I hooked up the uh, the oscillator, the oscillator box to the rest of the rig, the oscillator would shut down, and I instantly—well, not instantly—but it took me a while to uh, to realize that the uh, the buffer there obviously wasn't buffering, and I checked it out, and sure enough, it was blown too. Uh, it was an M MPF 102 JFET, and uh, it was allowing the RF from the oscillator to go through, but it wasn't buffering. So uh, the placing the load on the uh, on on the uh, on the circuit uh, caused the oscillator to shut down. So I had to replace another MPF 102. The other thing I discovered was, you know, I love we all love the Manhattan style of construction, but you know when you <laughs> when you when you build and rebuild on the same circuit board on the same Manhattan isolation pads over and over and when you do lots and lots of changes after a while well 
I, the way I think about it, after a while, Manhattan needs a bit of urban renewal. <laughs> you know, you've got big piles of solder and little bits of wire, and it gets really, really kind of messed up. And well, it, sometimes you need to just start over. So I just pulled out the uh, oscillator box, cleaned off the board, put new isolation pads in there, and there you go, urban renewal. <laughs> I want to I want to get credit for that phrase. There you go. That's a new phrase in the ham radio lexicon, and that's what you have to do when you've done too many modifications to your Manhattan uh, isolation pads, and you need to clean out the board and start over. Urban renewal. That's what I did. I, I really like building oscillators too. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I like I, I like building oscillators. You get that what I call the joy of oscillation when you finish that little project and you fire it up and you can hear in the general coverage receiver, your little oscillator, your little creation percolating along, creating RF. You know, it's the heart of the whole thing. It's like the, the heart of the rig. Then you've you've made that yourself, and you put on the scope, and it looks real nice. And it just seems like it's easier to get them going than it is to get the amplifiers going. And the amplifiers is what we're going to discuss next, the J-Bot and my adventures in J-Bot technology. Stand by Yeah, the J-Bot. I mean, I, I've been meaning to build one of these things for a long time. It's uh, and and this was the perfect application. So I went out and I started acquiring the parts. I got the uh, the transistors, the twenty-two. I'm sorry, here. Yeah, let me get it. The two N twenty-two eighteens. Farhan uses these uh, little NPN uh, transistors in little metal cans. Got them from uh, where did I get them from? From Mauser. And then there were these, uh, he uses these, these clip-on heat sinks. And I just went out onto the web and I found a, <laughs> I found a, uh, a company that provides spare parts for uh, the repair of pinball machines. It's a company called Big Daddy. And Big Daddy had the, uh, had the, uh, the, 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 the clip-on heat sinks for, um, for the J-Bot. Now, <clears throat> the, the, the heat sinks raise an interesting question. And um, our friend Bert was the one who, I'm, I'm sorry, Brent raised this uh, with us. Uh, he, when he saw what I had done, I put pictures of the uh, the J-Bot as it was progressing up on the blog. And you guys can check it out there. Um, what Farhan did was he just took the, um, he put the uh, the transistors in the heat sinks. And then it looked like he just glued the heat sinks right onto the uh, the, the, uh, the copper the copper-clad board, um, and when I built my J-Bot, <laughs> I built mine like Farhan built his, and as I was building it, I just had the, um, I had on the computer screen the the schematic, and you could scroll down to the to the photo, and I just went by the photo, and I, uh, I built it in very much the same size and configuration that, uh, that Farhan used on his, um, and after I got it done, it was really, really looking nice, I posted a picture of it, and uh, Brent wrote to me and said, "Oh, but uh, what about the uh, the fact that the collectors on these transistors are uh, connected to the can? The can is connected to the heat sink, and the heat sink is connected to the ground on the copper-clad board." And uh, ooh, that was uh, that that raised some concerns. Uh, and I started looking at it, and it, it's it's an interesting thing because the uh, these these little heat sinks are anodized aluminum. There's a a black coating on it. Now, uh, 
I checked them, and I, I did check these before I glued them to the board, and, and they appeared to be non-conducting. But of course, they're non-conducting because they've got that, that thin kind of metal uh, anodized surface on it. But if you scratch it a little bit, you can get down to the aluminum, and yeah, aluminum will conduct. <laughs> so I, for a while there, I was really concerned that I had uh, made a major blunder and had somehow forgotten to isolate the uh, the can of the... Uh, of the transistor from ground but then I, I tested it and it seemed like everything's okay this may be a matter of just living a little bit dangerously because I suppose if you when you put that uh, transistor into the uh, into the heat sink if you're not careful you could chip away some of the anodized uh, anodized material and make connection between the the uh, the can and the heat sink and then if again when you're putting the heat sink onto the board, you could do the same thing, and then you could you could end up shorting out the uh, uh, the collector circuit. But I think you'd have to be unlucky twice, <laughs> and I, and I, I I appear to have been lucky every time I did it. So I think maybe with just a little bit of caution, you can avoid problems with this. I'm sure this is not the school solution, and just as there are people who will tell you not to use the Red Rider BB gun or or use your telescope for solar astronomy. There are probably really cautious folks out there who will say, never glue with super glue an anodized heat sink to the copper-clad board of your JBOT amplifier. But, uh, you know, I, uh, I guess I believe in living dangerously, so that's the way I have it. The, uh, the amplifier went together really easily, um, and I had most of the parts in the junk box. Like I said, I had to go to Big Daddy for the heat sinks and uh, Mauser for the transistors. But uh, everything else was kind of available in the heat in the uh, in the junk box, which was very satisfying. It, I put it all together. It just took me a day or so, and then uh, you know I hooked it up and it, it passed the uh, the smoke test. Um, and I was quite pleased. And then I uh, hooked it up to a dummy load, powered it up, and I hooked it up to my uh, signal generator, and wow, it was uh, it was going. And uh, it looked like it was producing a nice, clean five watts. And I thought, wow, done. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I uh, started happily making preparations to stick it into the, uh, the chassis of the uh, Azorian DSB rig. And I had, uh, you know, returning to the 17-meter band in homebrew style. Well, not so fast, uh, gentlemen. You know, it, uh, it doesn't often work out that way. And sure enough, when I took this uh, device and hooked it up and connected it to a, a, an antenna, uh, essentially all hell broke loose. <laughs> and it was uh, it did uh, take off on me. It would it would oscillate. It wouldn't it wouldn't oscillate at low levels. But as soon as I cranked up the RF a little bit, it would start oscillating. At first, I thought it was only doing this when uh, when I had an antenna hooked up, but. Yeah, I think it's a matter of it just becomes more apparent when the antenna is hooked up because it shows up in the form of uh, an SWR that's jumping all over the place and the waveform looks really nasty because whatever you know oscillations are being generated are not finding a suitable load because the load is you know 750 ohms only at the uh, the resonant frequency that you've cut the antenna for so. Again, I think these, the, the oscillation problems just are, are much more obvious when you have the antenna hooked up. But they're, they're probably there 
even when you're looking into the dummy load, you just can't see them as well, especially with my uh, very limited range uh, scope. It's hard to see the uh, higher level oscillations. Anyway, long process of, of taming the beast. And I want to emphasize here that all of the taming that was required was the result of errors that I had made in, in putting the JBot together. The design is, is, uh, is bulletproof and flawless. Um, and I, uh, uh, it, it, it's just a matter of uh, like silly little things that I did when I was putting this together and, and kind of, I guess, little, little demons that needed to be exercised as the, um, as we put the rig, as we got the rig ready for oscillate, ready for oscillate, ready for oscillation, ready for operation is <laughs> a Freudian slip in the ham radio world. But, uh, I, I, I and I really don't know exactly what it was that I did that stopped it from oscillating. It's probably, um, a bunch of, of little things. I, I, I paid a little bit more attention to decoupling. I put some uh, ferrite beads on the um, on the leads that are carrying 12 volts to the amplifier. I uh, I took a look at the um, uh, layout. Well, the lay not really the layout, but the length of the lead length at, at critical um, at the input at the base input for the uh, for the final amplifier stage. Uh, where the uh, the bias is applied for AB operation, uh, the the the, the uh, positive 0.6 volts and and uh, that circuit, the lead length might have been a little bit too long, and I might have been picking up at that critical point RF from the from the output. I also noticed something that was uh, kind of uh, suspicious, and I I. <laughs> I blame Steve Smith for this. Steve, if you're listening, listen to this. Steve has been, over the years, a- admonishing me at on just about every project that I, I need to have that low-pass filter. And of course I do. I, I know this. Uh, um, but sometimes, you know, well, <laughs> you stray. Uh, and uh, uh, at one point I posted a picture of the J-Bot amp in the development stages, by the way, and it didn't have the uh, the, the the required five or seven element low pass filter at- attached. Well, I, I did. I went ahead and after Steve scolded me all the way from the left coast, I I went and put one together, and uh, I uh, I used the uh, the uh, component values for a, a from a, for 17 meters from from another uh, Doug Demore. Uh, amplifier project and I, I think that the filter may have been contributing to the problem but in a weird way when I when I looked at the filter one one after one one morning after many days of kind of frustrating battle with this thing I just decided to take a deep breath and look at it and and think what what might be the feedback path because that's what you're doing at this point you're trying to disrupt any positive feedback paths and I, I looked, and as I looked at the filter, I had built the filter kind of on a little daughter board off the end of the, uh, the main board for the amplifier. I noticed that one of the capacitors in the filter network was physically leaning up right up against uh, a capacitor that's kind of a bypass to ground capacitor in the... Uh, in the 12 volt supply to the final amplifier stage 
And I could just imagine a little bit of capacitive coupling there because there's a lot of RF in that uh, output filter capacitor. I could imagine just a little bit of capacitive coupling taking some of that RF and shooting it right back into the uh, into the, 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 the plus 12 volt line for that final amplifier stage. And I think that might have uh, contributed to the problem. So I just physically moved the capacitors away from each other and I put a little bit of copper clad board in as a shield between the uh, the output filter and the uh, and the and the uh, and the final amplifier the four the four transistors in the final amplifier stage, I think that all helped. Also, when I built this thing the first time, I used some binocular cores that I had in the junk box. I did some quick tests on it, and it seemed like the material was of similar permeability to the uh, cores used by Farhan in India. So and and it didn't seem like the uh, this was a real critical component. Now my cores were a bit bigger. I guess they were about the size of your thumbnail. These kind of binocular cores, and uh, I used them to wind the transformers, the three transformers in the JBot amp. By the way, all the information at, uh, about the JBot amp is available from Farhan's website, uh, the PhoneStack PhoneStack website. If you just Google, my cores didn't seem to work out too well, and I think. Uh, changing the cores back to uh, FT37-43 cores, as recommended by Farhan, helped. Now, it may be that just the physical size, the fact that the cores that I was using originally were physically bigger, may have helped create a feedback path. Or it may have been that because of the way these cores were configured, I had to use longer leads to get to the cores. But I switched out all three. I rewound all the transformers. I even got to make one of these kind of cool little uh, kind of roll-your-own binocular core uh, transformers where you take four FT3743 cores and you glue them together, two cylinders, two by two. So first you take two cores and glue, glue them together, another two cores, glue those two together, and then push. And then I wound the, uh, the, the final... Uh, final stage transformer through that wrapped a little bit of uh, of masking tape around it and and put those transformers in. Things seemed to be more stable with the the transformers. Anyway, after I did all this stuff, the thing is really stable. And I tell you what, guys, that was a, a moment of great satisfaction when I could take the uh, uh, that rig and crank up the RF and and see that uh, uh, that that the signal was staying clean all the way up to, you know, about all the way up to maximum amplify, max, max power on this thing. I take it up to about, about four Watts and, uh, and it's fine. Uh, it's really stable. I started then having to work a little bit on the, uh, the balanced modulator circuit. This is the, uh, the classic, uh, tri-filler wound transformer into two diodes. You know, I really like this circuit because there's a, a simplicity and an elegance to it. Uh, this is one of the circuits that I discuss at length in the uh, in the book Solder Smoke Global Adventures in Wireless uh, Technology because it took me a while to figure out how this thing works. And I, I just, as I wrote in the book, there's a lot of really uh, kind of beautiful electronic magic in uh, in this circuit. Uh, and, and I have to say that really understanding how the circuit works makes it 
a lot easier to kind of fine tune it and work it and 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 kind of work. Um, they one of the components that uh, Doug Demore had in his work in the CQ magazine article was a uh, a a 100 ohm variable resistor used to balance out the circuit. And you take the two diodes and you attach them to the ends of the uh, the variable resistor, and then you pull the output off the arm of the resistor. Now, I, I, it just happened that I don't didn't have a um, a 100 ohm pot or variable resistor in my junk box. I had a lot of uh, 1K resistors, but nothing uh, nothing at 100 ohms. Now, I didn't I could have I could have used the 1K resistor, but that would have meant pulling the uh, RF energy from my uh, balanced modulator through, you know, 500 ohms, which would have, I thought, introduced an unacceptable amount of loss. So uh, I just fooled around with the lits coming out. is not going through that resistor, but the, uh, the, resi- the, the variable resistor is, is able to balance out and compensate for any inequalities in the diodes or in the, uh, in the transformer. Now, Taking it one step further, I really wasn't satisfied with the carrier null that I got. There was still quite a bit of carrier coming out of the balance. And uh, reading through the uh, our uh, I guess I guess we could call them our uh, our sacred texts. <laughs> reading through the uh, uh, solid state design for the radio amateur and uh, and Doug Demore's QRP notebook, QRP design and. Uh, and QRP classics. I think uh, I, somewhere along the line, somebody said, "Well, you know, for, for balance balancing out the carriers, is to put two trimmer caps to ground, one from the uh, the business end of each of the diodes in the balance modulator, and then you just adjust those filter caps, and that's a way. It's especially used at, at uh, VHF and UHF frequencies to get the uh, the desired balance. But then." And this was a key point for me. Somebody said you could use both techniques. You could use the the variable resistor, and you can go for additional um, balance by putting these two caps on there. So I popped those caps. I think 300 picofarad caps, and uh, when I tweaked them, it was really really beautiful. I could get that that held out to the point where you you could barely see it on the scope. I mean, really really way down. I got really good uh, carrier balance. You know the uh, the the JBot calls for about a DSB rig points out that with this kind of uh, balanced modulator, you can expect uh, zero dBm uh, for each tone of a two-tone signal. Now that's of course I knew that I was in the ballpark for what I needed, uh, and I wouldn't really age between the uh, the balanced modulator and the, the JBot amp. And sure enough. I, I put it in there, and it, it the the balance modulator with the two diodes going directly into the uh, into the JBot amp works just fine. Um, you know, I think when you're working with double sideband rigs, you have to actually be more careful about oscillations and clean signals because in an SSB rig, you have that big crystal filter there that's going to kind of take care of any any sins or any problems. Um, in earlier stage, signal's not clean coming out of that balanced modulator. Well, the dirt's going to be going right through that amplifier, and the low-pass filter will take care of some of it, as Steve Smith has pointed out. <laughs> but uh, you, I think you have to be a little bit more careful. Also, I think the DSB rigs are more prone to uh, kind of 
taken off and, and oscillating on you because again there's no there's not that uh, crystal filter in there to break up the uh, the feedback paths especially back paths that might go from the uh, the final all the way back to the oscillator and around and around so uh, anyway uh, I gradually tamed the beast and I want to thank everybody who encouraged me Allison sent in an email from the I think from the EMRFD uh, 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 reflector that was real helpful and I got a nice message from Farhan thighs and he he pointed out he said oh man this seems to be a difficult week for home brewers he said kind of uh, Arduino chips or a pickaxe chip or something like that that he was working on and that uh, that somebody else had uh, who, who he'd been corresponding with had had been tearing his hair out trying to get uh, he was just pointing out that uh, things don't always go smoothly in this game and you have to be prepared for uh, for ups and downs but uh, anyway, uh, uh, it uh, it was it was a it was a difficult process. But man, I tell you what, uh, victory is is sweet. The sweet smell of success because the whole thing together. You know, you can still hear the cold that I have, and I'm still kind of suffering with it. But every dark cloud has a silver lining. And I, I yesterday was a sick day, so I was just sitting here and at home, and I. I got to work on the the rig a little bit, and uh, I put the whole thing together, got it all together, and uh, and and it works. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's go. It's it it sounds great. I I put it on the air and uh, and I immediately uh, got a, a really nice QSO with a guy out in Wisconsin, and he was running like 500 watts to a seven element beam. So I told him, I said his beam was probably doing the heavy lifting, but it didn't matter. It was it was just so much fun to take this little rig and uh, with a direct conversion receiver and the simple DSB transmitter and have a really nice, pleasant 17-meter conversation. My antenna's a little dipole out in the backyard. It's kind of low to the ground. I'm going to work on the antennas, but uh, but it was really, really great fun, and I uh, had a had a great, great time with it. So thanks for everybody who... Uh, encouraged me on that and thanks to Farhan for designing uh, it, uh, a, or, or an amplifier circuit that I think will prove to be a, a real great contribution to, uh, to to ham radio and QRP. It's just what we want. It's simple, nothing no unobtainium in there and, uh, and just a bunch of transistors and the power level's right, five watts, just about right. So I urge you to take a look at the J-Bot and Put put a J bot in your rig. I'm going to put a few more in mine. I got a few plans here. I'm going to I'm going to build some additional J bots, and uh, I'm I'm going through this recycling process. I'm going to continue it with a bunch of other rigs, but my next step, everything else, is I'm going to stop. I'm not going to do any other projects, and I'm going to work on the workbench, tools, test gear. I want to uh, I want to get everything in shape, and so that the next project will go. Uh, smoother. I also want to restock some of the uh, uh, the parts bins. I'm running low on capacitors and resistors, and I just want to work on a little bit on the efficiency of the of the workshop and the workbench before I plunge into another project. I think that's that's a good move. All right, let's see what else we got here. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm getting getting close to the end of the show here, but I want to share with you guys something. Uh, uh, before we get to the mailbag. Um, Part of our, I guess, where this is, this is the solder smoke literary corner. <laughs> like, oh, Oprah has her book club. You know, we can have ours. Uh, you know, 
I, uh, I told you I recently completed an, another orbit of the sun, and my mom sent me this book. It's been in the news, uh, Steve Jobs, the book about the bio on Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. Man, Walter is a good writer, and reading this book has made me want to get some more of his biographies. I know he did one on, uh, on Benjamin Franklin, and he also did one on Einstein. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be reading those. I have to say, fellas, that, you know, Steve Jobs, as you go through the bio, as, as you go through his book, the biography, not really a hell of a nice guy, <laughs> I must say. But, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. And it made me realize that I, I really like Wozniak. Uh, I mean, uh, the Woz, Steve Wozniak, he comes through this book at almost every juncture he's mentioned. He just comes through as a really nice guy, a really great engineer, and a guy who was really committed and, and, and kind of who shared the kind of the, the, the kind of love of electronics, the wonder of electronics that I think all of us have. Uh, and I, I really think Wozniak qualifies. He, he, he got his start through ham radio. He was a ham radio operator as a kid. And I definitely think, oh, he, well, I mean, that's no, no doubt about it. Woz has the knack. Duh. But also, I think Woz qualifies as a member of the international brother. His partner in Apple probably wouldn't qualify for. Um, I want to read you a paragraph here about Woz's early days in, 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 in electronics. One of Steve Wozniak's first memories was going to his father's workplace on a weekend and being shown electronic parts with his dad, quote, putting them on with them. He watched with fascination as his father tried to get a waveform line on a video screen to stay flat so he could show that one of his circuit's designs was working properly. Quote, I could see that whatever my dad was doing, it was important and good, close quote. Was, as he was known even then, would ask about the resistors and transistors lying around the house, and his father would pull out a blackboard to illustrate what they did. Quote, and this is the key line, guys. He would explain what and electrons. He explained how resistors worked when I was in second grade, not by equations, but by having me picture it. Close quotes. Thank you. Thank you, Waz. That's the kind of picture image. That's the kind of understanding that I think a lot of us are are really looking for. And it's really refreshing to see somebody who's done so much in the field uh, acknowledge that that kind of understanding is uh, is the kind of thing that 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 that, that really helps and and uh, sort of the the holy grail of <laughs> of electronics understanding. I don't know, but uh, I have to say, not a very appealing uh, subject. Enough of that. Hey, now it's time for Ag. Ooh, that's awesome. Yeah, solder smoke mailbag. Uh, I told you, uh, Steve Snort Rosen Smith has been regularly sending me emails reminding me of my moral obligation to include a low-pass filter at the uh, output of my uh, uh, transmitter. Uh, um, Steve, thanks for keeping me on the uh, on the, the path of righteousness there, and I am on the straight and narrow, and I'm in, I think. Um, Steve just sent me a message this morning, and he, it's, it's, very, uh, it's a timely warning. 
he points out that straight key night is approaching, you know, New Year's Eve, while everybody else is out there uh, intoxicating themselves. Uh, those of us who are into this game have an opportunity to stay home and uh, pull out the old straight key and uh, generate some CW and have some nice uh, nice contacts. Always a good way to spend New Year's Eve. Uh, sincerely, I'd rather be doing party, I guess, but that's just me. Um, got an interesting message from uh, Jonathan-san, our, formerly our man in Tokyo. He commented on, on something that I said in, I think, the previous uh, podcast, and it was about uh, the way some of the radios for World War II were designed. I think, I forget what I was talking I think I was talking about a Hammerland at this point. I, I don't, don't remember. But uh, I noted that uh, I'd read something along the lines that they had to kind of keep the, uh, the response of the thing very broad because uh, they wanted to use them for uh, to intercept Japanese radio communications and that there's a lot of uh, sibilant S's. Taught English there for, for many years, questions that and wonders and says he doesn't really know of a lot of kind of sibilant S sounds in Japanese. So if anybody out there who knows what this is all about, please let us know. Uh, thanks to everybody who sent me uh, uh, links to the Wayback Machine. I had mentioned that I lost my... Uh, kind of the the index file for the uh, kind of the archive for the Sutter Smoke podcast and didn't want to have to go back and reconstruct it. Some of you uh, clever guys out there uh, found, remembered that there's this thing called the Wayback Machine and it, it keeps copy, old copies of websites and sure enough, a number of people sent me uh, uh, links and we're all, we're all set. Talking about, uh, I guess you'd call it phonology of, uh, of Japanese and now we're going to get into etymology here, the etymology of the knack, the origin of the term uh, came from. And uh, John, DK3LJ, uh, thinks that it that the, the word the knack might come from the German knacken, knacken, I guess that's how you say it, knacken. <laughs> and he, he points out that this means sort of, it could have several connotations, both of them, all of them sort of negative, like uh, broken, I guess, or like cracked. In English, we could say he's kind of cracked. That used to mean, mean kind of crazy or kind of crazy. But, you know, let's face it, uh, John, there's a, there's an element of truth to that. <laughs> there's kind of a, a cracked, kind of uh, broken kind of craziness to this uh, obsession that we all share. Uh, so, but, but thanks for sharing that, and we'll, uh, we'll continue to explore the, uh, the origins of, of our beloved term. Uh, Jim, AL7RV, uh, a frequent correspondent, our friend, uh, writes in and, and talks about his uh, kind of teenage adventures in homebrew astrophotography. Thanks for that, Jim. Very interesting stuff. Uh, Michael, DL4MGM. Uh, he writes in and begins by telling me that he's noticed a certain amount of what he calls redundancy <laughs> in the Solder Smoke podcast. He, apparently, some people think that I repeat things from time to time. Well, I guess I do, because we're always talking about the same stuff. And, you know, <laughs> but uh, he, 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 Michael was very kind about it. And he says that he thinks that's just part of the whole solder smoke game here. I've, I'm going to try to be a bit more original. And that's why I'm mentioning the stuff that Michael sent in. He sent an email. He's been playing around with a Yesu FRG7 receiver. And he says it's. He notices that it. He it, there's a certain quote, a certain appeal to using equipment which has gears and scales instead of rotary encoders, microprocessors, and digits down to one hertz. 
Indeed, Michael. We agree with you. Absolutely. He, to- he points out that there's a circuit in the Yesu FRG7 that um, is called the Wadley Loop. And the way he describes it is that you've got a, uh, a, a first IF of 55 megahertz and a VFO that runs up to about 85 megahertz uh, uh, to, that mixes with the signal to get it down to 55 megahertz. And the way I understand it is that you... Uh, you you kind of use the signal from that same VFO, and uh, you heterodyne it with the harmonics of a one megahertz oscillator to give you the uh, the signal that you use in the oscillator for the second IF. The second IF is at three megahertz, and I think the way the Wadley loop works is that if your VFO, your first VFO, drifts a little bit. It, it the 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 you the, the the signal going into the second VFO kind of compensates for it because it drifts, it basically pulls the signal in the opposite direction. Uh, anyway, uh, oh, it's almost time to go. i got to take Maria to ice skating, so i got to wrap up mailbag here. Hold on. Maria, come on in. Say hello. Say hello. we got to go to ice skating. Hi. Where do we have to go? Ice skating class. All right, All right. we're going to go. I'll be right with you. i just got to finish up the mailbag. <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, the Wadley Loop. Thanks for sharing that with us, Mike. Uh, we've got a nice email from... Uh, Bob, W-A-1-E-D-J, he points out that he picked up a lifetime supply of iron pyrite, you know, fool's gold, great stuff for um, crystal radios. So uh, anyway, that's uh, that's it for, for Solder Smoke Mailbag. I hope to have, yeah, we'll have another one before Christmas, I hope so. Sorry for the long delay, guys. Uh, good luck with all your projects, and I hope the, the winter is being kind to you, uh, those of you in the in 7-3 from Northern Virginia. This episode of Solder Smoke has been brought to you by JTron, www.j-tron.com, an excellent supplier of electronic components for the knack victim and for the electronic hobbyist in general. JTron is a company run by one of us. Check them out, www.jtron, that's j-tron.com. The Solder Smoke podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support.